Welcome to the Med Device Careers Podcast. I'm your host, Fran Moriarty. Med Device Careers is building a community shaping the future of healthcare. Each episode, I'll sit down with leaders and innovators in the med device space to discuss their career path, explore their contributions, and share their advice. Join us today at meddevicecareers.com to grow your knowledge, network, and career. On today's episode, I sit down with co-founder and CEO of PrepMD, Matt O'Neill. Matt brings over 40 years of healthcare and medical device industry experience in sales, training, recruitment, and management for companies including Winthrop Labs, Cardiac Pacemakers Incorporated, and Boston Scientific. Matt played a key role in the commercial launches of Breakthrough Technologies, including the first implantable cardioverter defibrillator, or ICD. Since founding PrepMD in 2009, Matt has overseen an organization that has graduated over 500 qualified medical device candidates into the workforce and has grown business operations to include contract staffing and direct placement services, as well as a rapidly expanding cardiac device remote monitoring division. In our conversation, we reflect on Matt's embrace of taking calculated risks, his approach to team building and creating a winning culture, and his emphasis on cultivating meaningful relationships. I hope you enjoy. Well, Matt, thanks for being here. Sure. So Happy I'm ex- to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to jump in and, and talk everything Prep MD. And um, but I thought you know we could start, if not at the beginning, maybe with a beginning. And sure. Tell us the story of how uh, you know a family van led to your first job in pharma. So it's interesting about people that get into jobs; they get in different ways. So for me, I went to college. I grew up first of all in a family business. So we had a family-run business for years and years. And so after I completed college, I joined that business. And then shortly after that, uh, it was sold. And so I found myself in a position to have to do something. So I took a family van and I went down to the uh, warehouse district of Cambridge and I started knocking on doors uh, to figure out how I was gonna make a living. And I said that I would start delivering things. So. Uh, I used that van to basically start hauling things like educational books, and I hauled furniture. I hauled a lot of different things, uh, test petroleum. And one thing I did haul was pharmaceuticals. And I got a pharmaceutical contract to haul samples to sales reps. And that's really was my first introduction to the medical business. I would go to their homes and I would meet them. They seemed they were very happy. They enjoyed their jobs. Uh, they had nice homes and they had nice cars. And I was like, you know, how do you get into this business? So uh, that was really the start of how I learned about the medical field. And so then you ended up at, at Winthrop Laboratories, right? I did. I worked uh, for Winthrop Labs. I, uh, After speaking to these gentlemen that I used to deliver the samples to, they shared with me different contacts. And I reached out to uh, a variety of companies. I ended up getting three offers, and the one that I took uh, was Winthrop Labs, where I could sell in hospitals uh, contrast media to visualize the heart mm-hmm. when it was being uh, diagnosed for different uh, heart um, conditions, and also the opportunity to sell injectable devices. So it was more of a medical device that we loaded with syringes and things. So I liked the idea that it was, first of all, in Boston. The others I would have had to have moved. Mm-hmm. and. Um, I just bought a house with an 18% interest rate. I didn't want to give that up. <laughs> it's the 80s, right? Yeah, yeah, I didn't want to give that up. An 18% interest rate. Who would want to walk away from that? <laughs> right. So, um, but anyway, we, uh, but, you know, I started with that. And it really uh, taught me a lot about selling a, 
a tangible product, whether it was in a cath lab setting or in a pharmacy in a hospital. So when you think about like your students, a lot of them come from science backgrounds, but but not all of them. Mm -hmm. So what, was, what did you study science in school and how did you prepare yourself for the more clinical nature of, of, of the role? Yeah, it's a good question. I wanted to be CSI before CSI was popular. I studied forensic science. That was my dream. Uh, so I did take sciences. And then I, as I went through school, I paid for school myself. I, I was able to get through school in three years. Uh, back then, they let you take up to 21 credits. So I ended up with a degree just so I could literally get out and start working. And so the sciences that I took were probably more forensic-based. They were more physics and things like that. Um, but one of the things that I thought was important in the education I got was, you know, really the social science, learning about people, learning about the different needs that people have. And I think that combination of knowing that so that when you move into a, a, a role like a, in medical sales, you understand that there are people that have different needs, whether it's the, the nurses and techs you work with or the doctors. And I think that's one of the things that struck me about some of the education I got that I think I was able to apply mm -hmm. in the field working in a, in a cath lab. Right. So at Winthrop Labs, you moved your way up into a, a manager role, right? Correct. But that's not where you ended your career. Right. So you left that job for sort of a small medical device company called CPI, right? right. That's right. Walk me through that a little bit. So, you know, I did the pharmaceuticals and we, we talk a little bit about this with uh, even our students that come to our program. The job's important, but the geography is really the foundation uh, for the job. So my position that I was going to take next with Winthrop Labs was going to be in Albany, New York. And so I remember flying out to Albany uh, with my wife and the plane landed and we didn't get off the plane. Um, she was not interested in her view of Albany at that point was she had seen enough and really didn't want to see the snow and the mm -hmm. in the cold. And so I had been looking into an opportunity to get into medical. I had in my cath lab experience had run into folks in the pacemaker business. So when we came back, I met with a few of them. They thought that this would be a great transition for me because I had experience in the labs, talking to the doctors, selling products, working with uh, the staff. I interviewed with this small company, Cardiac Pacemakers Incorporated. They had this new technology called an implantable defibrillator that was not FDA approved yet. And so when I looked at that, I was looking at coming from a job that was very secure, uh, being a manager in a pharmaceutical position was a, it was a great job to have. Uh, going to this small company where I was uh, the 35th person in the organization to you know take a chance and start promoting a new therapy because this technology, there was no competitors, but there was no concept of how to use this technology yet. It did take me six months from the time I got the offer to really make the decision. I may be a risk taker, but I waited until the FDA actually approved the device before I signed my contract. Yeah. So, so I want to I want to drill down on that a little bit more. When you think about as people move through their career, right? There's a certain calculus involved in decision making, whether it's you know, compensation, location, upward trajectory. It sounds like obviously with CPI, there was a level of excitement around launching an innovative product. One thing I want to talk about later on is your embrace of calculated risk. But you know, when you weighed those two opportunities, talk a little bit more just about what it was about uh, CPI. Obviously, you were giving up a, a more secure position, but was it the opportunity to launch a product? Were you, I mean, the, the move into medical obviously went into that as, as well, but was there something about being at a small company? I love the story that you tell about the progression of the national sales meetings. Right, yeah. right. 
Well, it's interesting. One of the things that you find, um, we all find, is that some things that are harder to get sometimes are a little more rewarding when you do get them. And so I remember when I interviewed at CPI, I was still in the process of thinking through, do I, did I want to do this? And there was a bit of a gauntlet that you had to go out to. So there were seven interviews to get through. And the manager that hired me shared with me that the last three people haven't made it through the seven interviews. So it was a bit of a challenge to me to see if I could do this. So when you think about the, the risk that you take, part of it is about the reward on the, on the back end. Um, and I think for, for me, the ability to see this new technology that really needed to be shared with, and I did a lot of research on my own about what this was about. Mm -hmm. This technology had been studied since the 60s. And I really like the story about uh, Dr. Michelle Murawski, who uh, basically uh, spent his life's work creating this technology for his, you know, his business partner. So the doctor he worked with that dropped dead suddenly uh, while he was eating lunch when Dr. Murawski had just stepped out. So that intrigued me about the passion that this person had to actually go forward and try to spend you know the next 25 years trying to get this product approved mm -hmm. through the FDA. So, But I think going through the, the gauntlet of interviews, hearing on the back end that you know, I had gotten the offer really helped me feel better about making the transition. I had not given my other company notice yet, mm -hmm. but the fact that I did that, I felt like it meant more to me because it meant that the company was much more serious about bringing in good people and making sure that they were going to have success. Right. You did have success, right? CPI was ultimately acquired by Guidant. What was that experience like? I mean, I was the 35th person working in the field. There were engineers and other people that had been with Guidant selling their pacemakers, but uh, this launch of this new technology being one of 35 people that were going to go out and promote it uh, was very exciting. I, I think um, back my days of Winthrop, uh, Winthrop was owned by Sterling Drug, which is a, a large Fortune 500 company. Uh, you know, CPI was a small company, and you know, one of the very first national sales meetings were held on the back deck of the of the sales director. So it was a different world. It was fun, but it was about the people that you got so close to that you, you know, you felt really you were in the right company. You were with the right company. You were with the right people. I think the opportunity to do that was unique with a with a smaller company and. Um, and you got closer to the technology uh, because I think they they knew how important it was for people to go out and be the the face uh, and the message of the technology, and uh, and I think that they took the time to make sure that we were well armed and well prepared because it was it was really a make or break for this company. Right. So CPI is acquired by Guidant. While you're at Guidant, you receive the Statesman Award, which is mm -hmm. the highest recognition for sales excellence in the company. Talk to me a little bit about things that you learned along the way, whether it's growing a book of business or launching, as you mentioned, an innovative product in the market, right? W what motivated you to achieve such a high level of, of performance and success as an individual contributor? I think the thing gets back to what we what I mentioned before. It's about the, the social science uh, sciences that I studied and understanding when you travel around, my, my geography back then was almost five states. I had four and a half states. I had a lot of people that I would have to interact with. I think it was really about taking the time to get to know them and understand uh, what they needed. And I think for me, what I learned was there's a sequence of what you sell. You know, you really should sell yourself first. And once you've done that, then sell your company and then sell your product. And so I didn't really go in any place and talk strictly about the product right away. I would talk about 
I get to know them, understand what they were, uh, what the, what their jobs were, what they were doing for work, uh, for different jobs inside the hospital, in the device clinic, in the lab, and then talk about the company that I worked with and what we were doing, and then int- introduce the product. Mm-hmm. And I think it I think it served me well that when I had that approach, because you ended up having a relationship with somebody before you asked them to right. take a look at something that was important to you. You found out what was important to them, and I think that really makes a difference. So you said your your territory was five states. I mean, what was that like logistically running around, you know, covering cases? Yeah, it was it was crazy. Well, so you got to remember that the defibrillator back then, we were just getting it started. So there's a handful of places that were actually doing the implants, and we spent more time opening those folks up. But I had Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont, Massachusetts, and part of Rhode Island, and so it was a lot of lot of area to cover. But I think the ability for someone like myself to go out and really prioritize really who you felt like you could help the most the soonest Mm -hmm. was probably the process that you go through. So it's a big area to cover. But I think with a lot of people when they have broad geography or or challenges like that, prioritizing what they're going to do first, not just to benefit them, but to benefit their clients, Mm -hmm. I think is uh, is an important step. And so it was a big area, but I spent most of it in in key accounts that were coming on board. I do remember in 1991 when I was fortunate enough to win the Statesman Award. Uh, it was actually right before the guidance acquisition. I remember sitting with Dr. Bob Hauser, who was our president, and we we're at the national meeting and I was sitting next to him. I thought it was kind of weird that I was sitting next to him. And then they started describing this person that was going to, it's always the last award uh, of the night describing this person that was going to win this award. And I was like, wow, this guy sounds really good. I'd like to meet him. And then they <laughs> called my name. So I think, um, I think what, um, what that taught me was that I think people really sometimes can underestimate what their abilities are when they're presented with a challenge. And I think maybe I embraced that a little bit more uh, when I had these clients. I remember that year, I opened up 16 new accounts to do the implantable defibrillator, which was, uh, we were just getting it going at that point mm-hmm. in the early 90s. And so um, I remember it was a lot of work, but it was a lot of fun. Yeah, I would imagine. I mean, just my own experience with the subcutaneous ICD, a novel technology, but um, thinking through what that must have been like to, to launch you know, mm-hmm. the, the implantable ICD as, as a really novel technology. Right. So you make the transition from an uh, individual contributor, you know, sales rep to a manager with, mm-hmm. with Guidant. Was that something that you knew you sort of wanted to progress your career towards? Was it an opportunity that you needed to think through to a certain extent after sort of reaching a certain amount of success? Is it sort of the next natural progression for you? So that's a really good question because um, you're going to see a pattern here. So when I left Winthrop, it took me six months to make the decision to come. When they approached me to be a manager, it took me six months to really give them an answer whether I was going to do it or not. It wasn't that I didn't want to do it. I think for all of us, you're comfortable many times in what you're doing and you have a good handle on the job you're performing. And when you're asked to do something at the next level, so to speak, it can be intimidating and you can be a little bit unsure. And someone like myself wants to be sure I know that I'm going to be the fear of failure. I want to make sure I'm going to be successful at Mm -hmm. it. So I think... um, it took a little bit of time. I do remember a mentor and a, a good mentor I had, Tim Goldman, uh, met me at the airport and he just uh, worked for the day and we talked about it. And he said, this is it. This is your, your chance. You take it or not. I said, I'm going to take it. So it was kind of like I needed other people to really reassure me that you know this was a good move, mm-hmm. not just for me, but for the company. And I think that's what I got that day. Right. So, But the idea of working with other people was something I had done 
through my whole career. I had younger sales reps that I brought along, I mentored, so I, I felt like this was a good match for you know for where I was, sure. what, what I what I could do, what I wanted to do. You know, the requisite experience, whether it's you know understanding people and, and working with people, managing people seems to be sort of a, a natural progression from that. So thinking through the risks, the known unknowns, right? Like there are things that I know that I don't know, but mm-hmm. were there any sort of unknown unknowns, right? Things that you you didn't really expect going into the into the role that you came to to understand later. As a manager, yeah, yeah, I think um, you have this impression that people work a certain way. And that they work the way you work. And when you learn that you're managing, I think that first year I had 30 direct reports and in different roles, clinical roles, sales roles. Everybody did the job a little bit different. And so I think one of the things that I didn't anticipate was having to do a little bit of coaching, but also a little bit of adapting to the fact that it doesn't always have to be one way to get the job done. So I think one of the things that I would share with people is when you're you know, working on a team or you're working uh, as a manager, you probably need to give, in my estimation, your team enough latitude to really help them find their way with your guidance. But I think you have to be patient enough in the right timeline to allow them to succeed their way because they'll have more success if you, if you let them do it their way. Yeah, I mean, I, I hear from from who I would sort of describe as being among the best managers that I've worked with personally or that I know of, and you know, empowering their their people is always a priority, or providing them sort of the uh, ability to succeed, mm-hmm. and sort of that not so much micromanaging, but sort of the commander's intent, right? Where where you it, you empower them to to do the job, and and you're there to sort of give them guidance and, right. and, and coach. Right. So then yet another acquisition, guidance to Boston Scientific, mm-hmm. working as a, as a vice president in the Northeast region, right? So I'd be curious to hear as you sort of go from CPI to guidance and then guidance to, to Boston Scientific, besides sort of like the, what you may recognize as being obvious answers, you know, in your mind, what were some key differences uh, b- between working at a smaller company versus a larger company? What were some benefits to, to both? Or is there one that you find, we'll talk about Prep and D in a minute, but it'd be curious to see if there's a size or, or a kind of makeup of a company that you particularly enjoy working in. Yeah, I think they all had a lot of great things about them, but they were all a little bit different. So we talked a little bit about CPI first, small company. A lot of companies have a lot of bright people, but what happens in a small company is you're probably two steps closer to the, some of the brightest people in the organization. Mm-hmm. And so I think that really struck me because I would be at dinner with CPI and we'd be sitting with engineers that had developed the biphasic waveform or they had done these things that are very novelty in, mm-hmm. in as far as the device goes and you got really close to them. So that was, that was great. As you got into a bigger organization, you know, guidance to me always struck me a little bit uh, and to this day, we still talk about it. Everyone talks about sports and the coaching tree, right? There's people that come out of a coaching tree, whether we up in New England talk about Belichick mm-hmm. and others that have great successes. A lot of guidance people are have learned a lot of great management skills. And I see that those folks in other areas now, they're everything from presidents, global presidents of organizations to other leaders in, uh, in companies and innovative products. So mm-hmm. when Guidant was formed, all these separate companies, CPI and Physio Control, and the different companies that had their own specialties came together. They had that small company mentality. 
And then they came together in an organization. I think the company really flourished because of the people that were in sort of smaller companies that were now one big company, but they sort of were still acting like small companies rolling up to guide. You know, that was interesting. I think for Boston, Boston was a powerhouse company. And I think the ability for them to have the diversity across the different product lines that they had brought a lot of resources to bear that smaller companies probably didn't have the ability. Sure. You know, I think about, you mentioned about Guidant and sort of being a, a powerhouse of, of management and a lot of lessons learned from there. And I think my experience in the field is sort of the, the hiring legacy that you've left behind at Boston Scientific, at least when I entered in, and even if they're there now or, or where they've moved since then, I think a lot of really strong players in the space credit, you know, their career to working with you. When you think about building a strong team and a strong culture, right? I know we've sort of touched on components of it previously, but are there certain things that you look for that are specific or do you have a process that's sort of intentional when when you're looking at at hiring talent or or, um, building a culture of success? Mm -hmm. I think that's talent's the key question that you've got to answer building every organization. And the talent doesn't have to look the same, but the talent has to be highest of quality. So there's two things that are very simple that I learned to look for early on when I was trying to find the right talent. And I think it's People that have demonstrated these two characteristics, one is good judgment and the other is passion. And so if you can find someone that can be passionate about something and they demonstrate good judgment, you're going to have the start of really a good employee. Um, You can train them on technology and, and things like that, but it's nice to know that they can get fired up and they can get excited but that they use good judgment mm-hmm. when they get that. So in other words, if, if you have one and not the other, it can be a problem. So think about that. If someone has a lot of passion, uh, but they go off the rails a lot and they're not using good judgment, you could probably find themselves yep. in trouble or not be good for the right, company. It becomes a liability. Right. If someone else has really good judgment, but they don't really have the passion to do things, uh, sometimes you may have to kick them in the can a little bit to sort of you know get them fired up. and. And that's really not what any manager really probably wants to do. So I think seeing those two things are important. I remember one interview I had with uh, this gal and she was a nurse and she was very good, but I just wasn't seeing the passion. I think she was nervous about the interview and I think it was, she was having a hard time coming across with something that really would convince me to hire her. Mm -hmm. And I asked her a simple question. It was getting to the end of the interview, and I think she probably thought that she wasn't going to get the job. And I said, you know, before we go, what, what do you like to do for fun? And she goes, I'm a national ballroom dancer. She goes, no, I'm a national ballroom dancer champion. I was like, really? And she got all excited. She went on the next 15 minutes, told me all about it. And then she had she had me and the guy I was interviewing with up on the, up on the floor showing us uh, ballroom <laughs> dancing moves. So I had seen enough at that point. I knew that you know she had the skill, she had the good judgment, and she had the ability to have the fire that would uh, be something that would want to hire. Mm-hmm. Being able to sort of see through, you know, there's there's a certain level of by by nature of, of the act, it's performative to a certain extent, right? But right. being able to to recognize whether it's innate or um, develops sort of talent or or potential within somebody and and seeing ahead how that provide value to, mm-hmm. to a team or an organization, right, is, is really critical. I'm curious and excited to talk a little bit more about that as you built out PrepMD. Um, so you go from Boston Scientific to, to start your own company, PrepMD. I, I know that, you know, just talking in the past, 
there's a sort of contrarian streak to mm-hmm. you. You know, when you think about um, starting prep MD, you know, <clears throat> there's there's it's not only do you have to make sort of a non-consensus move, right? But you have to be right about that, right? To really find opportunity. Walk me through a little bit, like what was the need that you saw for prep MD? Um, you know, why do you think it hadn't been, you know, sort of addressed in the way that you know you ultimately ended up addressing it? Um, and sort of what did that look like logistically, right? Going from Boston to to starting prep. Yeah, I mean, anyone that's going to start a company. Um, and again, you know, I started one right out of college and I think that was a challenge and I learned a lot doing that. But looking at, um, again, needs-based type things, but not everyone sees them. So the ability for you to sort of have the vision to see where things are going versus where they are right now. Mm-hmm. It's like uh, you like sports, you know, whether it's hockey or basketball. Skate to where the puck's going. Skate yeah. to where the puck's <laughs> going, right. So to me, I think it's that's the key. So you've got to sort of have a sense of where it's going. So going back to your question, you know, I had written the business plan probably five or six years earlier than we actually started PrepMD. And my timing's not great because, as I mentioned, my first house had an 18% interest rate. Decided to start PrepMD in 2009 when it was probably the worst time to start a business. But what really triggered it was meeting with, as a VP, with senior management and our CEO and recognizing that the training was prohibitive. The business was growing, but it was still a 52-week training program, Mm -hmm. and that we were learning that 19% of the people were not getting through the program. And so almost one out of five, we weren't able to move them forward because they weren't able to learn the technology. So to me, it really struck me then. I remember getting on the plane, flying back to Boston. I was in Texas and saying, we're going to do this because this is needed. I remember going to uh, the president and so on, uh, uh, telling him what the plan was. And um, it's interesting because to your point, they kind of thought of of it as a pacemaker school. Mm -hmm. And I said, it's really not, I understand what you see, but my vision is that it's going to be a little bit different than what we think of as a pacemaker training school. Uh, It's going to be really a company that looks for problems and tries to provide solutions to a lot of those problems. And I think that's kind of the way we approached it. Young people getting careers has been a, was a challenge. How do you get into these fields was challenging. I never would have gotten into medical if I hadn't driven a truck and met the folks that sold pharmaceuticals. I mean, to me, everyone has a different story about how they, how they got in. But I think finding it Finding a way to get in a little more directly, I think, uh, is probably what was needed. Um, the benefit to the companies is that they'd have the opportunity to get more trained people uh, that they could count on and not lose one out of five. And so kind of looking at it as a win-win so that more than one side of the equation is going to get value out of it is, the, is kind of the way that, that I thought about it. Um, and then as we went through uh, the years over the past decade, we just look for things that were issues. Recruiters really did not have people that had this training. And so the ability for us to start a separate placement agency recruiting firm allowed us to fill that void where now people that were looking for this could go through this um, recruiting arm. And we very much linked to, to Prep MD, but that's what, their, what, that's what their goal was. And then moving on into other things like cardiac monitoring and so on. Right. Yeah, I mean, I look at PrEP's evolution since 2009 and your point about situating yourself as uh, an organization that can solve problems, right? I think, 
you know, that is uh, really at the crux of it, you know, in, in a way that's positive some, right? Mm-hmm. Like to your point, you're adding value, you know, on both both sides. You, you recognize a need in the training space for these large cardiac device companies and you also sort of parlaying that into a, an opportunity for people looking to, to get into the industry. Right. Um, you know, speaking as somebody who went through the program myself, I mean, mm-hmm. certainly, you know, it was... Uh, you know, career changing for me. And then to your point about as you grow and, and you know, recognizing new problems that arise within the ecosystem that, you know, PrEP is uniquely situated to provide a solution for. Right. Um, you know, like you mentioned RMS, for instance. Right. Um, so, you know, obviously those are some ways that uh, PrEP has evolved, even in, in, in the time since, since I went through the program. Um, you know, when you look at the landscape now and uh, think about, you know, more like secular trends across, you know, the medical device industry, but even sort of the, the touch points that affect PrEP specifically, how do you see or what other opportunities sort of do you see ahead for PrepMD to, to continue to solve problems? We're really trying to teach people the business and really get them excited back to the passion idea and then connect them to industry. Um, what we've learned over the decade or more is that we're really focused on changing lives and improving outcomes. And that's really kind of what our focus would be going forward. So we look at opportunities that we're faced with now in the cardiac remote monitoring space where everything from people that are really trying to learn how to do it efficiently to understand what is the proper way to actually execute a device clinic, you know, so that you understand whether it's heart failure patients or whoever might be in that clinic are going to get the standard of care that they want them to get. As we look at other areas, even beyond remote monitoring, there's, you know, we have started to tap into places in neuro where we've got folks that are now working on the neuro side. And a lot of people back when I was at Guidan uh, moved from Guidan uh, Cardiac Rhythm Management over to neuro. Mm-hmm. And so as we think about you know, when we started PrepMD, um, the goal was to not create a cardiac program. It was, tr- you know, we don't have any heart insignia or EKG on it. It was really about a medical device company that could create medical device career opportunities while solving problems for the, uh, the healthcare providers. So we look at the different things that are coming. I think neuro is definitely one. I think there's a lot of opportunity in monitoring uh, technologies, whether they are consumer-based, mm-hmm. um, as we're seeing more and more wearables um, that need to be monitored. And, and so the ability for them, whether it's a particular watch they might wear or something else they might have, and for them to be able to provide that information to somebody that can help support their goal of how they want to live a more full life, uh, that's where I think we're. I think that's where I think we're all headed. Right. Again, to your point about being able to read the landscape and position yourself to where it's going, prep continues to grow. So you're the CEO of a growing business. So how do you balance sort of the ability to stay agile or nimble with those sort of growth constraints? And, and you know, as, you, as you begin to implement structure and processes to sort of enable growth, how do you balance that managing, whether it's people or task delegation, communication overhead? You know, do you have sort of a, a philosophy as it relates to that? Or does it sort of, again, circle back to your, your notion of really empowering the people to own their to mm-hmm. own their individual sort of roles and responsibilities? Yeah, I think it's, you can say CEO, you can call it whatever you want, but it's sort of a management style that you really are looking for uh, to deliver so that your people can succeed. So I think, again, it starts with finding the best talent. And that really is talent that you need to do a particular job. So if you need somebody that is really going to help you with your staffing and working with your 
clients as well as your um, students, they've got to fit that mold. If you need someone to stand in front of the room and really, in layman's terms, break down how a cardiac device works, and, but they can explain it technically so that they're uh, making everyone in the room competent, then that's what you need to look for. So, so for me, it's like understanding what we need and then what are the, what are the sets around that? Is it, is it presenting skills? Is it, is it personable skills? Is it uh, coaching? But, you know, when I think about it myself, I think I'm probably more of a collaborative, more of a, a consultative coaching, you know, management style that starts to lean towards persuasive and visionary in the sense of I need people to sort of know they have my support mm-hmm. and I need to, you know, support them and kind of what I talked about earlier, letting them find their way, but then persuading them a little bit to see my take on it. And then also the vision where we're going to go. Because mm-hmm. if you can share the vision uh, with your management team and they see the vision, then they'll understand what they need to, need to do to get there. Especially for a, a company that is growing at the rate that, that PrepMD is, I think. You know, having a vision that, that your people are, are bought into is critical, right? To empower them and to you know, let them feel that they're part of the process, right? Right. Kind of circling back to this notion of taking calculated risks, right, mm-hmm. as sort of a you know thematic quality for your your career progression. Is there anything else? Any other sort of overarching models, mental models, or lessons that you've learned? You know, I know that you know we we dived into sort of your your philosophy around managing people. Is, is there anything else that you've you've seen as as a useful mental tool or some way of approaching or thinking about a situation that you've been able to sort of go to in, in times of uncertainty or change? I guess what I, what I would say is you want to have multiple options on the table. There's one rule that I always had as a manager. When someone brought me someone to hire, I would not let them interview one person. I would not interview them or we would not hire anybody until there were at least three to five people that could be viewed for the for the position. Because what that allows you to do is it allows you to look at the options and understand better who you are looking for and what it is that you need. Because back to what you said earlier, you know, you don't know what you don't know. You may find somebody that really has a skill set that you didn't think of mm-hmm. that it's going to be beneficial for this job. So um, I think those are things that I think as I think about these now, there's different little idiosyncrasies that I have like that, that I know my managers would probably point out that um, I wouldn't let them do certain things uh, you yeah. know, unless they did it a certain way. Right. So Winston Churchill, he painted during uh, World War II when he was prime minister, right? Mm-hmm. And, and he said that um, the tired parts of the mind can be rested and strengthened not merely by rest, but by using other parts. So... You know, what do you do to enjoy yourself outside of your responsibilities at PrepMD? How do you sort of disconnect and you know, use the other parts of your mind? Yeah, I think that, that you've got to find a way to um, step away. It's healthy. And so you find something that you can put yourself into. So for that, for me, is family. I've got some grandkids that I spend time with. But um, I think uh, boating has always been relaxing and uh, refreshing and I can spend uh, a day or two on a boat and I feel like I had a week's vacation. <laughs> so I think, um, I think boating and, um, you know, I'm, I like to watch sports. So I think sports uh, sort of uh, is a way that is invigorating but also uh, relaxing. Boating was a skill that I never picked up on. I guess it's from growing up in Vermont. So It might, it might have something to do with it. <laughs> I bet you're a skier. I, I snowboarder, <laughs> yeah. 
So I would also ask, is there a time where um, it could be a strategy, a process, some initiative that you know you took as an individual or managing through as an organization where where it didn't go to plan, it didn't it didn't go as planned, it, it didn't quite pan out the way that you had anticipated, and not so much focus on what that the specifics of what that may or may not be, but like what were some of the lessons or takeaways that you walked away from that as a learning experience? Yeah, I can recall back. Um, uh, and then, you know, 20 years ago, working as a manager for Guiden, I was a pretty young, I was a new manager, not, I guess I wasn't young, I was a new manager. And the ability for, um, for me to kind of have my own uh, plan and kind of lay it out, um, it was exciting for me because I, I you know, I, I was just given the title manager and I was going to show them that I knew how to hire people and do these things. So we hired, uh, I hired about 12 people. And I had everything laid out and everything was going to be perfect. And then we got a note, uh, a notice a couple of weeks later that we just acquired uh, a company and that we were going to have to integrate. I personally was going to have to integrate 35 people on my team. So now my plan that I just had built uh, had kind of gone out the window. And so what you have to do is you have to adapt and you have to figure out, okay, in this situation, you know, who are these folks? How do they fit into my plan? And what part of this is not my plan and that I have to sort of, you know, get comfortable with? And so um, I guess the example I'm using is one where you don't have done all the work, they've given you the opportunity to do it, they tell you to go do it, and then you go do it and you feel good about it, but then the reality is the plan that you have come together with has changed and now you've got to, um, you've got to shift gears. And I think what you want to do is you really have to take a step back because it's different and reassess what's the goal. Why do we, in this case, acquire this company um, and what, we, what are we trying to accomplish? And make sure that you understand that before you make any other moves because your original plan was built uh, with a different set of you know, parameters around it. Right. And I think that's the key. Yeah, that makes me think of a quote from Eisenhower. It's, you know, to paraphrase... You know, plans are worthless, but planning is is absolutely critical and necessary, right? right? So, so the act of building a plan, right, is 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 paramount, you know, to any operation. But understanding that, you know, the plan is going to go out the window, and you right. have to adapt to sort of the ground truth. Um, if there's anything that you're currently reading, you're, you're finding enjoyable, or if there's a book from the past, you know, that's had sort of a personal or professional impact on you, mm-hmm. I'd be curious to hear what that might be. Yeah, I think. Um a recent book that I read was um, from Simon Sinek called Find Your Why. And that struck me because I think a lot of companies, whether it's, you know, he talks about Coca-Cola or all these different companies, um, if you can find your why, then you actually have a good uh, story to tell about why people should work with you, why they should consider your, your product. So I find his approach Interesting because it makes you think more about why am I doing this? We offered uh, a new platform recently that would be a global reach, allowing people to have a resource that would enable them to learn more about the medical field. And I think um, one of the folks that works with us, uh, we asked the question, why would we do that? And uh, it's really to provide access to more people for this this training. Uh, you know, not everybody can come to uh, PrepMD to get trained. So it's interesting because it allows more people to do it. And then, you know, we're, uh, we're enabling people to learn about it and access it uh, because they can't access it through, uh, 
the typical training format that's done in, in Braintree. So when I hear him talk about find your reason why, um, I think that's an important lesson for, for people to learn mm-hmm. when they're launching a company or really doing anything. So finally, what kind of career advice would you give an individual maybe looking to enter the medical device space or grow their career within it you know, as somebody who has really seen the gamut of, of technological innovation, held a variety of different positions within the space, has sold, right, has managed people, has started a company? Um, you know, what kind of perspective might you provide? Could be something that you would tell your students at PrepMD. It might be something mm-hmm. that you would, you would say to you know, somebody who is um, currently in the space. Yeah, I think um, first thing I would say is don't be intimidated. Um, you know, when you look at whether it's going into the medical field or some of the field you want to get into, and it could be daunting from the position you're in, you may think it's going to be um, overwhelming. I think to kind of break it down and take it in small bites and understand that there's people that have done it before you that maybe didn't even have the skill set that you have. And so I would say first, don't be intimidated. I think the second thing is, Understand that no matter what you do, you're going to have to find a good mentor. Uh, that's probably the, the dirty little secret about you know joining an organization. If you can assess quickly who in that team is going to be a great mentor for you, that's probably going to give you the best uh, opportunity to accelerate your career. I do think that um, people are drawn by the technology. I think that you know the technology is is great. It's awesome but really only people can really move you ahead. And so really recognizing the fact that you, back to an earlier point we talked about is, you know, sell yourself first, get to know people first, understand who they are and how you can interact with them. And then they'll find a way to help you and bring you along. And that's really what I would encourage people to do. Great. Well, Matt, thanks so much for taking the time. Um, You know, I think the listeners to this are going to walk away with a a wealth of, of not just knowledge, but, you know, sort of actionable items to move forward with. So yeah, thanks so much. Right. Thank you, friend. If you enjoy hearing conversations like this one, please subscribe to the Med Device Careers podcast, leave a review and recommend to a friend to help spread the word. Are you searching for a new career, looking to hire the next Med Device star, want to grow your network, or are simply looking for a reliable source of Med Device news and insights? MedDevice Careers is creating a platform for professional development and opportunity, cultivating growth through engaging content and conversations, and connecting MedDevice professionals across the globe. Go to MedDeviceCareers.com and create a profile today. You can also follow MedDevice Careers on all social platforms, and I can also be found on Twitter at PacedBeat or on LinkedIn, where I'll share what I'm reading and learning as I continue to grow my own career. Thanks again.